This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. As this year comes to a close, many of us are looking into planning the one to come. Maybe you're setting New Year's resolutions, making plans and goals, maybe you're feeling optimistic or pessimistic, but if you've been following this show for any length of time, you're like me in believing that we can only control ourselves and our own actions. Regardless of what 2022 brings and whatever surprises are coming our way, I'm dedicated to taking the little steps every day to regenerate my little part of the world and to be a force for regeneration in whatever small way that I can. And while I believe that all of us as individuals have a lot more power than we often give ourselves credit for, I also know from experience that our real power lies in collaboration and community. And that's why my friends Kuhn, host of the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture podcast, and Dimitri, host of the Regenerative Agroforestry podcast, have come together to host a community call for each of our networks to start 2022 off as the year of regeneration. Join the three of us in an open Q&A where we'll be talking about our own projects and what we're most excited for and inspired by in the year to come. We'll have opportunities to connect with others in the network and the chance to share your own projects and goals. So join us live at 7 p.m. Central European time on Monday, January 10th in this connection of communities and let's get this year of regeneration started together. You can find the link for this event in the show notes for the episode on the website and in our link tree on Instagram. Be sure to sign up soon because spots are limited and I'll look forward to connecting with you on the 10th. Hello everyone and a very Merry Christmas Eve for those of you who celebrate it. I sincerely hope that you're sharing this day with the people closest to you, whether or not you can be with them physically. I myself am far separated from my immediate family, but I'm so grateful to be spending this time with my partner and her family, who for the time being live just up the road from us. Now let's get to today's episode. Now, we all know that the topic of fertilizers and inputs for farming is a contentious one. Most of the chemical options out there either use mined minerals or petroleum products through destructive industrial processes that may improve yields but commonly pollute waterways, destroy soil life, and are extremely expensive. But what's the alternative? If you have degraded or poor soil where little will grow, you have to improve it somehow, right? But wouldn't it be amazing if you could make your own fertilizers and soil amendments that didn't contaminate the ground but rather enhance biological activity? Luckily, Nigel Palmer, lifelong gardener and author of the Regenerative Grower's Guide to Garden Amendments, has been researching and developing just these types of solutions for decades. Not only has he been able to dramatically improve the health and the composition of his soil over time, he's been able to make his amendments easily and cheaply at home by harnessing the power of weeds and household products to create extracts, ferments, and inoculants. The result of this has been delicious and nutrient-dense food that you simply can't buy. Now in this interview from an earlier skill exchange call with the farmers on the Climate Farmers Network here in Europe, Nigel and I spoke about some of the most important steps and knowledge in creating your own amendments. Nigel first talks about how to assess the health of your plants to know which amendments to consider, and from there we look into a few different homemade products, how they work, and when to use them. We also explore how plants take up nutrients in different forms, and how to intervene when they need it the most as well as a lot of other useful advice and tactics that any gardener can use to care for their plants regardless of the context that they're in or the challenges that they face. Now if you want to hear the full unedited interview from the skill exchange call with the Q&A session at the end, 
as well as access the resource packet, which includes amendment recipes from the book, just check out the subscription options on our Patreon page. Now this is really empowering information because the recipes are very approachable and have the power to help break any addiction to chemical fertilizers as you would build towards healthy, resilient soil. So now I'll hand things over to Nigel. Nigel, why don't you tell us uh, how things are going and where you're speaking to us from? Okay, uh, so I'm in the United States. I'm in Connecticut in the United States and that is in Southern New England. Uh, for those of you uh, are, who are city oriented, that's about halfway between Boston and New York. If you drew a line between Boston and New York and went up just a little bit, uh, that's pretty close to where I am. Um, I am at about a thousand feet elevation, which is relatively high for this part of the world. Um, I'm just out of the Connecticut River Valley, which divides Connecticut in half and goes from uh, Long Island Sound all the way up to the Canadian border. Uh, dividing Vermont and New Hampshire and splitting Massachusetts in half. Fantastic. And so today, Nigel, we're going to focus on some of the content from your book, The Regenerative Grower's Guide to Garden Amendments. Uh, this is long bolstered the garden savvy by mimicking uh, and deconstructing the cherishing and the complex nature of, of garden amendments and all of the things that you can make for yourself. Um, you've been the head of curriculum development for the Sustainable Regenerative Garden Program, if I got that right. And you're also a long, a lifelong uh, commitment to sustainable practices have combined with your acclaimed professional expertise, which has allowed for practical yet sweeping knowledge of this field. And so let me start by asking a kind of a, a large question that we can explore from different angles. How... Uh, how do you know which amendments to use in your garden? Assuming that you're going to have to assess your plant and your soil health somehow, what indicators do you look for that an amendment may be necessary? Uh, that's a good question. A good place to start. Uh, first of all, most of us have soils that are pretty poor, um, less than optimal uh, in the mineral distributions, as well as the biological distributions. And biology is something that people are only just starting to think about relative to the soil. Um, unless you have a really nice thick humus layer, uh, you have plenty of clay for the uh, exchange uh, capacity of the soil to hold on to those minerals, um, and you have nice air to flow through and water to be held onto by those uh, small pores within the soil, then you probably don't have a thriving biological uh, community uh, with which to interface with the plant. Uh, of course, the soil is the plant's digestive system. And unless you have this uh, uh, healthy soil, we'll call it high tilth, high exchange capacity, then you probably don't have the wherewithal for that biology to thrive. So um, there's the whole biological conversation that we could have. Uh, and then relative to minerals themselves, um, the best thing to do to understand the minerals in your soil is to do a comprehensive soil test. And that'll give you an idea of uh, deficiencies and uh, uh, as well as too much excesses. Uh, many soils have excesses, specifically if they've been farmed or gardened over a long period of time using practices, uh, NPK kind of practices. Uh, probably you've got too much potassium in, in your soil, for instance. So um, the first place to start is to try and understand where you're at. It's kind of like shooting a, a, an arrow at a target, uh, you need a target. You need a bullseye somewhere in the world. Um, and so a soil test is a good place to start with that. Once you have a soil test, then you can start talking about 
the macro and micro minerals that you need and sourcing those things as you go along, um, no matter what, uh, probably, as I said before, your biological content is lacking. And so uh, working on uh, uh, housing for the bacteria, uh, um, fungus and archaea, as well as the flow of air and water in the soil becomes high points. So those are the beginning places of, of, of any kind of conversation. Now, there's a lot of ways that we can observe where our ecosystem is at. You mentioned those soil tests, but there's a lot of different soil tests out there. Uh, do you recommend one in particular? Because there are ones that you can do yourself at home and others that you have to send away for a lab to receive. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, so there, you're right, there's a whole bunch of soil tests and, and many of the soil tests uh, essentially are using different strengths of acid to dissolve the minerals uh, in order to get an idea of what's in them. Uh, a MELIC-3 test is a, a relatively weak acid that's pretty close to the same sort of acidity that plants exude when they uh, um, release compounds into the soil to feed the soil biology. So MELIC-3 is a good idea, a good test, and uh, um, there are labs around that can do that. Um, I, I have one here in the United States and they actually work internationally as well, if anybody was interested in that kind of conversation. Um, uh, Haney test is a relatively new test that people might wanna think about. Um, it's a little bit more uh, um, effort involved, but uh, um, it will give you another level of understanding of what's in the soil uh, relative to mineral minerals. Um, a lot of tests out there will give you information about NPK and a few minerals, but you wanna make sure you get a soil test that covers um, 15, 16 of the key minerals that are needed in the soil. So you really get a, a, at least an understanding of where you're at relative to those macro and micro minerals that are in the soil. Mm. And there's a lot that you can tell from observing the plants as well from deficiencies to illnesses to even infections from fungal and bacteria sources. Can you tell us a little bit about the observations that you go through to see about the health of the plants that might indicate what's actually going on underground? Yeah, sure. Um, I think the most important thing is to observe the weeds that grow in your soil. Um, I think it's well worth letting weeds do their thing for many, many reasons. Um, most importantly, weeds will give you an idea of the mineral deficiencies in your soil. Um, there are, uh, there's a, a couple of books out there that I really like that give extensive information about the types of soil that different weeds grow in. Um, also, there are other farmers that uh, uh, will tell you about mineral deficiencies based on the color of the flowers that grow in your fields. So yes, there's a lot of observations you can make uh, relative to what's growing in your garden based on the weeds that grow there. And also what you'll find is once you start mineralizing your soil and moving your soil in a direction of balance, you're gonna find that the weeds that grow in your, in your soil are going to change, which is a really fascinating thing. And it's one of the first indications of, hey, guess what? This is really working and there's something to all of this. Um, the other thing that's interesting to look at, and you talked about uh, plants and, and how they look, um, when you uh, are, have plants that are succumb to uh, insects and uh, um, pathogens, airborne pathogens and things like that, that's a good indication that the BRICS level of your plants is very low. In fact, you can determine or guess uh, educationally the BRICS level of plants by the insects that are actually eating your plant. Um, as you may or may not know, uh, insects do not have the enzymes in their gut to digest plants that have high sugar content. This is why 
using a refractometer and bricksing your plant has a lot of value to it. Um, but also when you see specific insects eating your plants, they will tell you uh, a, a, a range of bricks that your plant's in. If you're being uh, affected by uh, aphids and some of these little tiny guys that eat things, you're, you, the plants are probably in the range of seven, eight uh, kind of thing. And if you're observing grasshoppers and things that are munching on your plant, your bricks is, oh, those plants are probably in the range of maybe 10 and 11, 12 kind of range. And so you'd let, you, 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 you can see your plant health improving by the insects that are actually chowing them down as you improve the uh, quality of, and health of the plants that you're growing in your field. So by watching weeds, understanding the weeds that grow there, and also the insects that are actually infecting your plants, um, you can tell what's going on uh, relative to their brick sugar content and health. Same with powdery mildews. If you're getting mildews and airborne path pathogens on your plants, that's a good indication that they're pretty unhealthy. Uh, a healthy plant will use the excess lipids that it makes to put that nice thick layer of fat or lipids on the leaf surface. Uh, perhaps you all see those really healthy plants. They have that nice shiny green layer on it. Those are lipids and that means the plant has enough energy uh, to actually produce those lipids and put that layer on the plant leaf. And there's an indication that you have a healthy plant that is going to be able to uh, protect itself uh, against some of the airborne pathogens that are out there. So yeah, um, hanging out with your plant is a really good idea. <laughs> Nothing fertilizes the garden like the gardener's shadow, right? <laughs> yep, foot in the garden, right? Most important thing to put in the garden, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. All right, so we've got a good baseline understanding of the indicators that could give us an idea of where we're at health-wise, both in the soil and in our plants. Give me a little introduction as to why you would bring in amendments, what they're capable of doing, and then we can go into some of our recipes. Okay, sure. So um, as I suggested, once you do a soil test, you're going to find that your soil probably doesn't have all the things that it needs. And most people are looking in their plants and seeing insect infestation and, and, and airborne pathogens. They know they got to do something. So the reason to do and use amendments is very clear. Um, if you don't have a healthy plant that's brixing uh, in the 12, 13, 14 or higher range, uh, it's a good indication that you have to do something about it if you, if you want to have a healthy plant that's not going to get eaten by insects, for instance. And so the next thing is, well, um, wh what do I do? Where, why, why use these amendments and, 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 and what's in them, if you will? And um, it was not long after I started making all of these amendments and applying them in the garden, uh, and recognizing there was improvements, I've, I've decided to determine what's in them, right? What, what is actually in these amendments and are they representing the 16 or 18, you pick a number of elements that need to be uh, fed to a plant? And the other thing is I was really taken back when I first did my soil tests and I realized that I need one part per million molybdenum. Well, where am I going to find molybdenum and how am I going to put one part per million in my field or in my, my garden? It was a daunting task for me. Never mind cobalt or manganese, zinc, copper, it goes on and on and on. And so I started doing analysis on the mineral amendments that I was making and I found that all the minerals were there. And one of the reasons I published this book is to make this information available to people. And there's an appendix in the back of the book that actually lists the elemental composition of many of the amendments that are actually 
uh, the recipes are, uh, are given in the book. And I've also started a website to try and make this, uh, expand this database and make it available to people, not only all over the world, but from all of the, over the world. So people, no matter where you live, can recognize, this is how I can get these amendment minerals. The other thing that's really cool about making a minerals, making mineral amendments from plants and other things that are uh, organic or living is that these amendments are available to the plant. They're in the ionic forms, the liquid water-based ionic forms that plants can use directly. And so rather than putting something in the soil and waiting for it to decompose and be digested by the soil solution, by, this, by the soil ecology into the soil solution and absorb through the xylem pathway, you can apply these as foliar sprays directly onto the leaf and the plant can access them and flow them through the plant through the phloem pathway. Um, and so um, the reason you need to do it is because most of us don't grow really healthy plants. And the, the, um, the rationale behind using these specific amendments is that they are in plant available forms and they're in the proportions that plants need. When you look at the data, you're gonna see that the molybdenum is 0.14 part per million for stinging nettle, for instance. Wow, I rang the bell. Not only do I know where to get it, but it's in the proportion that the plant needs ready to go. Yeah, that's fantastic. And that's one of the things that really opened my eyes about reading the book is that all of the things that we need are not hidden somewhere or needing to be mined out of the soil. They exist in our environment, oftentimes in the plants that we're most trying to get rid of and keep under control. Why not use that as an asset to keep the ones that we're trying to, to make flourish um, even healthier. And so, okay, there's a whole range of different amendments in this book. Can you break them down into different categories and the functions that they have in the garden? Yeah, sure. Um, so the uh, top level category is biological and mineral, right? Um, there are, uh, and I've tried to arrange it so that here's the biological amendments, here are the mineral amendments, and then there's a few in there that are both. When we start talking IMO4 and, um, and making compost piles, for instance, we're, now we're moving into the realm of both biological and mineral. So uh, 35,000 feet, that's, uh, that's the first breakdown. The next breakdown is the, whether or not they're shelf stable or not. Um, I think it's, at least in my part of the world, we go through winter and it gets really cold, everything freezes and we get to skate on ponds and, and ski in snow and all that kind of lovely stuff. Well, um, it's nice to be able to make these things in the fall or the spring or the summer and have them shelf stable on uh, a shelf in, the, in, in the, wherever you keep them so that when spring rolls around, you're ready to go. Not only that, you can actually apply some of these things as foliar sprays in the wintertime that will be absorbed through the bark of the tree and uh, serve to uh, provide nutrients for the plant in the wintertime. Um, so the next level is shelf stable or not shelf stable. And then finally, one of the, uh, one, one of the things about the data that I provide in, in, in the appendix is that it shows you the degree to which each process has the ability to remove minerals or elements into solution. For instance, I started uh, taking weeds and throw them in a bucket of water and, and just do nothing and waiting a couple of weeks until it stunk so bad that uh, I got complaints from the people that live in my house with me and I had to apply them to my plant readily. Okay, and then you move into the uh, um, fermented, uh, 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 fermenting the, the weeds with leaf mold biology. 
Okay, now you move into move, uh, fermented plant juices where you're actually uh, using sugar to ferment these things. Well, each of these techniques work, but each of these techniques remove out a different, I'll call it quantity or concentration of these constituents uh, for any particular plant that you're, or process that you're gonna use. And so the next third level is the efficacy of removing minerals for use uh, in the garden. And, and I talk about minerals and, and removing minerals, but in fact, these processes are, moving, are removing far more than minerals. They're moving, uh, removing uh, uh, complex compounds, uh, enzymes, and, and, and many other things that are helpful to the plant. So 35,000 feet, you've got mineral and biological amendments. You've got shelf-stable and not shelf-stable. And then you've got the degree of efficacy um, of each of these processes to provide uh, those sorts of things. So let's move now into application. Um, later, we'll go into more specific examples and case studies between plants and different amendments. But for now, let's, let's speak broadly about how these are applied. You talked about foliar sprays. There's applications directly into your compost or into your soil and how these work at different phases or life cycles of your plants. Because of course, they're going to need different things as they go through these different stages, vegetative, flowering, fruiting, or dormant, and different plants have different ones of those at different times of the year. And so how important is it to pay attention to the phase of life that your plants are in and intervene at the right moment with the things that it really needs? Yeah. Well, I know throughout my life, I've really found it important to understand the phase of life that I'm in and what I need. Why wouldn't it be the same for a plant, right? Um, so uh, phases of plant needs um, and intervention. So as you suggested, plants go through phases and for each phase they go through, um, they have different needs. And, and um, at uh, germination, for instance, they need everything they can get kind of thing. Well, so at germination, um, let's say that we're talking tomatoes, um, if I am going to germinate tomatoes and I just got that noodle going and that tomato plant is just starting off, what might I put on that to facilitate the growth of that tomato plant? Well, it doesn't take long to recognize that a fermented plant juice made from the tomatoes of last year is going to have everything that a tomato needs and wants. And so I quickly realized that by providing fermented plant juice of uh, a tomato to my germinating tomatoes, uh, I can't think of a better uh, um, diverse product. Again, all the minerals it needs, again, in forms that the plant can use that that tomato plant might want. And I'm gonna apply that as a drench while it's a, a seedling. Um, but once it gets uh, several leaves on it, now I can start applying it as a foliar spray as well. So there's, there's a plant specific thing. Now I'm gonna change subjects and talk about that whole mineral and that soil test again. Once I've done that soil test and I recognize the macro and micro minerals that the plant uh, might need, I will consider the long and short term uh, aspects of developing the minerals in that soil. So when we talk about calcium, for instance, we want a really high percentage of calcium in our soils. Uh, uh, if you read, um, some of the books out there, you're gonna see 68%, for instance, right, as a, as a percentage of calcium. Well, when you go do your soil test and you find you got 30%, all of a sudden you really, you need a boatload of calcium. So how are you gonna do that? Well, that's where rock dust come into play. 
So rock dust will help with the, the macro minerals, whether it's magnesium, sulfur, calcium, um, whatever it might need, and uh, finding a local quarry where you get that really, really fine float. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that you wanna be applying. And you wanna do that in the wintertime, like now here in New England. And you wanna do it several times throughout the fall, winter, spring to distribute that, uh, uh, that rock dust and allow the winter weather and the water to break that down into the soil solution. Um, so now we talk about the, uh, the trace minerals like the molybdenum, uh, cobalt, manganese, and things like that. Um, so you can apply those as the foliar sprays with the mineral amendments that we just talked about, the fermented plant juices and the vinegar extractions that we're talking about. Um, so then, then we get into the general idea of, okay, now I've got my, my garden farm up and running and things are mature. Um, so you wanna give them more of a nitrogen-based uh, product throughout the uh, growth uh, period. And um, I found um, the leaf mold fermentations of weeds provides a really high nitrogen source, as well as the fermented plant juices and fermented fish and things like that. That has a really high nitrogen. So that would be a good time then. And then when we get into flowering, we need a phosphorus source. And so for phosphorus, uh, the vinegar extracted bones offer a tremendous uh, degree of phosphorus in it. And so foliar spraying with something like that during flowering is a great idea. And then of course, at fruiting, now we're back to calcium and we wanna get calcium into that plant. And so I'd recommend something like uh, vinegar extracted uh, bones, uh, which have really high phosphorus content in it. And again, if you look at the data that I've put, you can see that things have these things. The oyster shells have significantly higher calcium uh, content than, and than many of the other ferments, while fermented bones of mammals, cows, uh, pigs are gonna have a very high uh, phosphorus content. And of course, they all still have a complement of the broad spectrum minerals that the plant needs. So it's not like you're just putting just phosphorus or just calcium in there. You're still giving broad spectrum mineral amendments to these plants as they go forward. Yeah, that's one of the remarkable things about these recipes and using the plants that are around you is that it's not using these sort of isolates and uh, just a few compounds that may be difficult for a plant to absorb because of deficiencies of other support minerals that actually help it to make use of the macro that we're trying to deliver. Uh, it's kind of the same concept as eating whole foods rather than isolated supplements for us as humans, right? Yes. There's a great parallel between what we're talking about here and our own self. Uh, when you consider our, the human gut, um, it's loaded with bacteria and, and, and all sorts of living things. Well, so is the soil. So the soil as a digestive system for the plant is akin to the gut as a digestive system for us. And when you start thinking about it, uh, the key is to have a really thriving soil because the soil is what the plant eats and we're what the, we're, we eat the plants. So it's really all about the soil and making sure that soil is that very robust digestive system for the plant. So we've been talking about some specific applications right now and the necessary nuance of the phase of life of the plants, tailoring this to the deficiencies or the surpluses in your own soil. Are there any of these amendments that are just generally good and you can't really go wrong by applying them? Yeah, uh, so my two favorite are, at least from the data that I've gained so far, are uh, dandelion and stinging nettle. They, they seem to be very, very high 
in a broad spectrum of many minerals. Uh, so those are the two go-to generals for me. Um, I think that plants in general, each of them are unique in their own way. And so the nuances of what they want, need, what's best, what's general, um, is really up to us as experimental gardeners to find out ourselves. Again, this is one of the reasons that I put this information out there. It took me an awful long time to gather this information and do the analysis and, the, and gather the data to show what was going on. And I felt it was just so important that this information be available to people all over the world so that we can all work together and expand this line of thinking and this line of gardening. Um, it, it bewilders me why it's so difficult to find this information. But uh, in fact, it's up to all of us to, to learn about these things and, and, and experiment. And um, I, I mentioned the refractometer earlier. The refractometer is a really good way to determine whether or not a plant likes what you're applying to it. Um, as we suggested, when you apply a foliar spray, you should be getting results in hours from that application. And let's just say you had a, 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 a hedgerow of blueberries, um, you could apply, uh, you measure the refractive index of the uh, uh, two different portions of those blueberries, apply the foliar spray to one of them, and then go back and measure the refractive index uh, an hour later, two hours later, the next day. And what you'll see, if the plant likes what you're providing, is you're going to see an increase in the refractive index. And so what you're doing is you are feeding the plant and getting it used to the ideas of providing it this nutrition. And the plant becomes familiar and expecting these things. And so in order to help incre increase the health over time, providing these things on a regular basis will improve the general uh, uh, health of that plant going forward. And you can measure it with a refractometer, which is a really great idea. It's a, again, it's another empowering uh, concept uh, that we can all use for pretty cheap uh, to evaluate what we're doing. I also really like what you said earlier about this needs to continue to advance and uh, people need to take up the responsibility of continuing the experiments and the learning to figure out what works in their conditions. Um, tell us from your experience how you've gone about designing these experiments, gathering information, and getting to a point where you feel confident that this will really work for others. Yeah. Well, I kind of told you that. I'll, I'll, I'll try and lay it out again. The first was doing it and seeing results and then actually deciding to measure what was in the amendments. And I worked with a, a several different labs um, to try and do this analysis, uh, to get a standard lab that will do the analysis for me on a regular basis. Um, one of the uh, uh, banes of any kind of research, uh, specifically scientific research, is uh, sources of variation. And so by uh, having a single lab with the same process over and over and over again uh, eliminates a lot of sources of variation. And so, um, as I suggested, I, I published a lot of it in here. And on my website, um, I have a database that I'm putting out there for the public. And I'm inviting people from all over the world to participate in this uh, experiment to increase this database. So um, I was talking to a farmer in Pakistan uh, not too long ago. And I was telling him about, yeah, just go get some dandelions and, and as a start, right? And he said, well, there aren't any dandelions around here. And I said, well, what do you have? And he said, I don't know. And, and, he, and so I said, that was really one of the light bulb moments for me that said, oh, well, what, find out what you do have, go through the process, 
send the amendment into some place. And so now you know, and then we'll publish that and it's available for anybody in Pakistan or anybody in the world. So they can start building on these understandings as well and using them and knowing what's in these things. So that's the first, first place for me was actually to try and figure out, well, what's really in this and, and why is it working? And, and does it make sense that these things are actually nurturing a plant? And um, so that was that was a that was a really fun moment. And, and I remember when I first got some of the first data back and saw just what broad spectrum minerals were in some of these things. It was a real mind blowing thing for me. I really. Yeah, isn't it fantastic now that we can kind of crowdsource this information? The Internet gives us access to other people's findings from across the globe and we can all learn together. Um, I'm wondering too, if you see a lot of business potential in creating some of these amendments of making them at home and making them available to people in your area. Yeah, um, I thought about that. Um, but um, the first thing is I don't wanna make any money on it. Um, I, I, and I think that if I do that enterprise, um, then it stifles the, uh, the learning of others. Um, making these things is really simple. Uh, most people get in their car, they drive to the store, they purchase something and they come back and they have no idea what's in the bag or the bottle and they apply it anyway. Well, you can actually make this stuff in the time it takes you to go to the store and come back. I mean, the 20 minutes or the 15 minutes, you can actually make a jar of fermented plant juice or a vinegar extraction really easily. So my thesis is more of empowering people to do it themselves and know how simple it is rather than to try and, and, and make a bunch of it and, and, and sell it. I mean, First of all, I don't have the energy for that. I just, I'm old, man. I, I'm done with all that kind of crazy stuff. Maybe you guys are young enough and are interested in doing that. But um, for me, I, I, it's the information that's so important. All right, thanks once again to Nigel Palmer. You can find more about Nigel's book, The Regenerative Grower's Guide to Garden Amendments, at chelseagreen.com. I also highly recommend checking out the catalog of other titles on gardening and regenerative agriculture while you're there. Now, before you go, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be exploring questions there like, what challenges keep coming up in your own garden that are likely connected to the health of the life in your soil? How can you tell if the amendment or nutrition plan that you currently have is effective or not? And what weeds or persistent annuals around you might be untapped gold mines of minerals and plant nutrition. Now as I personally learn more about the deeper and emerging science of soil and plant nutrition, they all seem to lead back to some simple and recurring patterns. It's not the mineral makeup of the soil that feeds the plants, it's the microbiology and the fungal life that makes these nutrients available. By caring for the microbes and all the life in the soil, we create the conditions for their symbiotic relationships with the plants that we want to grow, and in turn, we can enjoy that nutrition in the food that we harvest from them. Our own health and well-being is directly related to the health and the resilience of all the other forms of life in the ecosystems that sustain us. So instead of trying to feed plants directly, we need to steward every level of the ecology so that they can all feed themselves. Now that's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future. And I'll be right by your side along the way. <laughs>